Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Nancy Beck Young, Professor of History at the University of Houston, to discuss her new book, Two Sons of the Southwest, Lyndon Johnson, Barry Goldwater, and the 1964 Battle Between Liberalism and Conservatism, published by University of Kansas Press in 2019. Welcome to the podcast, Thank you for having me. A lot of other books treat some of the political players from 1964, aspects of the election, but your book is the first one to really offer a comprehensive political history of the campaign, particularly with a focus on the Sun Belt as as central. And I just want to say at the start that reading this book during June of 2020 was a treat, given the remarkable similarities and differences to our impending choice between liberalism and conservatism in November of 2020. And I'm hoping later in the podcast for us to be able to discuss those similarities and differences. But but first, I want to ask you how you came to this really interesting project whether this builds on earlier work, how it departs from what you've uh, published previously, which is extensive. Well, there's a simple answer and a long, uh, not quite as simple answer as to how I came to this project. The simple answer is that Fred Woodward, who was the longtime director of the University Press of Kansas, asked me if I would be interested in writing the book. So that's that's the easy answer. But the longer answer is that, yes, this does build on uh, projects that I have previously done and hopefully lays a foundation for work that I hope to do in the future. My uh, dissertation and first solo authored book was a biography of Texas Congressman Wright Patman, who served in Congress from 1929 until his death in 1976. He was also a Texan, I think I said, and was very very involved with Lyndon Johnson, was considered himself uh, an ally of, of Johnson. So there was a Johnson thread running throughout that. And uh, I've had a long fascination with Texans in Washington more generally. So I, I think uh, without taking the entire podcast uh, to just answer that one question, uh, I think that might function as both the short answer and uh, the long answer. Um, you have a great introduction in which you thank a lot of people and you thank a lot of librarians. And I have to say, I, I love those kinds of prefaces that really give a sense of the, the kind of research work that was done. Would you just give the listeners an idea of the sort of 
collection of archives that you were accessing and I don't know, maybe one really good story about some find that you had, but just, just to give a sense of how you did this research. Sure. So I probably could have written a book just synthesizing the various uh, single focus uh, accounts of the 1964 contest. There are uh, shelves full of books that tell the story from the perspective of Goldwater and the rise of the modern right. And of course, I read all of those and relied on them to help me frame my story. There are also shelves of biographies of Lyndon Johnson and studies of his years in the White House that deal with the 1964 contest, but none that put all sides in juxtaposition and that none that take the reader through the story of the contest without uh, w- w- without analyzing from the perspective of uh, we know who's going to win, but really treat the contest as something that unfolded day to day as election campaigns do. So I felt that if I was going to do that, I really needed to go to the sources and look at the papers of the major contestants, not just Johnson, but also Goldwater, and also the many other Republicans who were interested in getting the nomination in 1964. There was just as heated a contest in the Republican primary as uh, there was in the fall general election between, uh, between Johnson and Goldwater. And so I spent quite a bit of time going and uh, sorting through uh, Nelson Rockefeller uh, and uh, other Republicans who were interested in uh, interested in gaining their party's nomination. And as to oh, uh, best archival find, I think that would have to come from the Goldwater uh, papers. In Goldwater's papers, there is a collection of transcripts that I don't think can be found anywhere else of every newscast in the course of the election that talked about the uh, about the campaign and the election. And that filled, I want to say, at least a couple of archival boxes, maybe more than that. And it was fascinating to read the transcripts of the evening news, uh, material that could not be had in another way. And I found that to be tremendously useful. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Well, some people, uh, this podcast is listened to by all sorts of political scientists. They're not all American. Uh, so, so for those of us who don't remember, uh, this election in 1964 and neither do you and, and, uh, like remember it, but now you know it, uh, can you help set the stage for where we were, uh, uh, Republicans, Democrats together before getting into this face-off between Goldwater, the conservative and Johnson? the liberal. Sure. So the political landscape of the United States in the early 1960s could not be any different from the political landscape 
of the United States in 2020. I think that is very important to acknowledge. The country was feeling optimistic about itself at this point in time. There was not a tremendously high distrust in the federal government or leaders or institutions. There was uh, a, a general uh, sense of optimism. There was a faith in the economic future of the country. There was a faith in American progress that the United States was on an upward trajectory that could not be halted. And there was some forward movement with dealing with the country's then most fraught uh, social problems, civil rights. Not enough, not fast enough, but some, some forward movement in the, uh, in the early 1960s and some hope that that forward movement would bring, uh, would bring positive, positive results. So a very different country, a very different place from where we find ourselves now where there's pessimism and fear and a darkness about where we are now and where we might be going. So I I think that that is important to note. As to Republicans and Democrats, both parties were very different in the early 1960s than they are now. The Democratic Party in the early 1960s was really a collection of a couple different parties within parties, if you, if you will. Uh, so what I mean by that is that the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C. was very Southern because Southern Democrats held a disproportionate amount of power in Congress. Until uh, until his death in the very early 1960s, Sam Rayburn, a Texas Democrat, had been Speaker of the House of Representatives since uh, since 1940, uh, with the exception of uh, just a couple years when the Republicans held the House of Representatives. Uh, Lyndon Johnson had been Senate Majority Leader in the 1950s, and Democrats chaired Democrats from the South chaired most of the powerful committees in Congress. So it was a Southern party in Washington, D.C. But it was also a a party with power bases in other parts of the country that had a more progressive bent than perhaps what you might find from the courthouse politicians in the Democratic Party in the South. I think uh, maybe for listeners who are not familiar with American political history, I should stop for just a moment uh, because people are probably saying Democrats South, uh, and <laughs> yes, that's right, <laughs> Democrats South. Uh, I'm the product of uh, half uh, half Southern, half Yankee marriage, uh, literally, and my uh, Southern uh, my Southern uh, family members would have sooner, and I quote, sooner voted for a curry-yellow dog than a Republican. And that did very nicely explain the 
political identification of most white Southerners. The party in the non-South had a certain frustration with Southern Democrats' intransigence to move forward on race reforms. There were liberal Southern Democrats who were sympathetic to civil rights, but the stereotypical Southern Democrat was at best benign on the question of civil rights and more typically obstructionist on the question of civil rights. But yet this party, this national party, did coexist electorally and had been dominant since the New Deal era at federal, state, and local levels. So it was it, it was very dominant. And we should remind listeners that at this point, the vote has been so suppressed of Black Americans in the South that they don't have uh, electoral power because of the poll taxes, because of grandfather clauses, because of physical intimidation. So that you don't have a vote there that is that is pushing uh, either party really uh, toward towards civil rights or to responding in any way to lynching, etc. That is correct. Now there has been some marginal change, a Supreme Court decision a couple decades earlier had outlawed the white primary, which uh, was, and this gets off the subject of the 1964 election and really takes us back to the early 20th century, but the white primary was a Texas invention that posited primary elections were not matters of the state, but were private uh, private gatherings that could restrict participation to those who were welcome. And that became thus a device alongside poll taxes and literacy tests and the like to prevent African-American voting. The white primary was disbanded by the Supreme Court, but that did not open the doors widely enough to full suffrage for all Americans, regardless of race, color, or creed. And uh, so there was change afoot. And I think some of that change is part of what drew out the worst of the worst in in the South. And some of this I talk about in in the book and uh, Lady Bird's campaigning on behalf of Lyndon in the fall of 1964 in the South, but we'll we'll save that for uh, a few a few more minutes. But yes, no, uh, African American voter registration is still very much tamped down. It's improving, but it is nowhere near where it needed to be on the eve of the 1964 presidential election. The Republican Party by the early 1960s is suffering a major identity crisis. And its identity crisis is rooted in the fact that it has only won two presidential elections since 1932. And those two presidential elections, many were willing to write off as a fluke. Those were the elections of General Dwight Eisenhower as president in 1952 and 1956. Eisenhower had run as a new style Republican He had pushed back against the old guard conservatives within the Republican Party and had really tried to build 
a, a forward-looking Republican Party that was less about ideology and that was more about forward progress for the country as a whole. He failed miserably in his effort to build this uh, new modern Republican Party. And his failure further stoked the frustrations of those on the right in the Republican Party who chastised their party for running a series of Me Too candidates since really uh, really the uh, 1936 contest against, against Franklin Roosevelt. All of the Republican contenders for the presidency had not so much run campaigns against the New Deal and its legacy, but uh, had run campaigns that suggested a need to change this part of the New Deal or change that part of the New Deal, but had accepted the New Deal as a fait accompli. And that really, really angered those on the right in the Republican Party. They wanted a wholesale a wholesale rejection of New Dealism and uh, a return to a return to traditional values, whatever that is supposed to mean. And uh, so, the Republican Party, to sum up, in the early 1960s, is in the middle of a, an identity contest between between the right wing conservatives who want to remake the party and its moderate East Coast establishment that is perfectly happy to continue to uh, continue to work within the spectrum of the legacy of the New Deal uh, against a Democratic Party that is not yet divided over the question of race, but potentially dividing over the question of race. So that is, in a nutshell, the landscape that the two parties find themselves in in the early 1960s. And the detail in the book is terrific. Uh, For those listeners who think they know what went on in this primary and what the party landscape looked like, I just can't recommend enough the subtlety uh, with which, Nancy, you you, you deal with this and it just brings it all to life. It's, 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 it's so easy to read and it's also so informative at the same time. And that's hard to accomplish in a book. Um, if that's what the Republican landscape looked like, then how is it that Goldwater emerged as the candidate for the 1964 presidential election? Well, that is, uh, you know, that is a story that Takes uh, takes up a couple of chapters in in the book, and so I'll try to explain that as succinctly as possible here and and now. The first point to make is that campaigns did not happen in the early 1960s in the same way that we are accustomed to them happening today. We are accustomed, although this year has been different for reasons of COVID, we are accustomed to a primary election in all 50 states. 
where every voter who wishes can go to the party of their choice and participate in a primary election to help select the nominee for their party. There were not competitive presidential primaries in all of the states in the early 1960s. The primary election was still something of a new thing in the early 1960s. There was still just as much in the way of delegate selection happening behind the scenes through primary or through precinct conventions and county conventions and state party conventions that felt less democratic and felt less representative of the uh, of of the national uh, national will of the people. Uh, so the primaries for the Republicans that were competitive were in New Hampshire, uh, in Oregon, and California. Those were the most important competitive primaries. You can look in the book, and there's a chart in the back of the book that spells out all of the the primary contests, but those were the most important uh, most important contests where all candidates competed. In other states that had primary elections, not all of the candidates ran a race. They didn't even try to get votes in in some of the states. Imagine imagine that. That's really really hard for listeners in the 21st century to consider having a primary election and having a candidate not seek votes in that contest that would equate in some way to delegates at the convention. But nevertheless, that is how it still worked in the early 19 uh, early 1960s. So the result of the uh, different contests uh, unfold in uh, in this way. The contest in New Hampshire is close, but ultimately uh, Henry Cabot Lodge prevailed there. And the interesting thing about Henry Cabot Lodge prevailing in New Hampshire is that he was not yet really a declared candidate yet in 1964 in this contest. He is still the American ambassador to uh, to South Vietnam. And so he is not a declared candidate, but there is the benefit of proximity, Lodge being from Massachusetts, and that translated into a hardcore group of Lodge volunteers who worked neighboring New Hampshire for the benefit of their chosen candidate. Goldwater didn't do all that well in New Hampshire. New Hampshire voters didn't take to uh, Goldwater's tactics or his demeanor when he campaigned in the state. They didn't like it that Goldwater's wife wore a fur coat in the state. They viewed that as showy and ostentatious and not in keeping with their practical New England values. And so Goldwater just didn't translate well in the Northeast in New Hampshire. So one contest down and Lodge 
is looking good. Uh, the next contest that was important in terms of uh, in 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 terms of actual competition, uh, where more than one more than one candidate attempted to get votes was Oregon, and in Oregon, Nelson Rockefeller uh, was the candidate who prevailed uh, in in that primary. So what you have two competitive primaries in, you have two different candidates coming out on top, but you have the East Coast establishment prevailing in both of those contests because Nelson Rockefeller was also viewed as East Coast establishment. He was East Coast establishment. That was his his background. He was uh, he, he was successful governor and uh, a moderate and uh, proponent of civil rights reform and just did not. Uh, did not share the same sorts of concerns or or uh, any of that with the far right in the Republican Party. From Oregon, and of, of course I'm leaving aside the contests that were not really competitive, from Oregon the contest shifts to California. And California is going to be the last major competitive primary for the Republicans. And that is a two-person showdown, uh, winner-take-all, between Barry Goldwater and Nelson Rockefeller. And in that contest, Barry Goldwater eked out a narrow, narrow victory with 51.6% of the vote to 48.4% of the vote for Nelson Rockefeller. Perhaps Nelson Rockefeller's personal life played a role in his defeat in California in that Republican primary contest in 1964. Nelson Rockefeller had gone through a very public, very messy divorce and had remarried a woman with whom he had presumably been having an affair prior to his divorce. His new wife was pregnant during the middle of the campaign and set to deliver at about the same time as the primary balloting was scheduled to happen in California. And you can just imagine the back channel nastiness that ensued with all of this and the efforts to paint Rockefeller as lacking the moral compass to be president because he had been divorced and been sexually promiscuous outside of his marriage and on and on it all went. So very scandal mongering, playing into the sort of religious conservatism that makes up a component of the new right. Uh, Goldwater partisans did use churches to 
foster their campaign. There was that sort of play to uh, play to morality here. And for anyone who's listening and is going, conservatives, California, is this lady crazy? Uh, no, really, I'm not. Uh, that's another piece of just how different the political landscape in the United States in the early 1960s was compared to today. California in the early 1960s at the presidential level was more to the center center right in in its politics. So uh, not at all unexpected uh, for the Republicans to think they could uh, they could carry California in 1964. So uh, I hope that answers the question and is uh, enough of a teaser to get readers to want to read more about this part of the contest. No, I think it's really helpful. And one of the threads that runs throughout the book is when did modern conservatism begin and what was the content? And I think part of this description about Nelson Rockefeller and the morality issue is actually something that gets taken up again and again in the book because you're not just speaking about 1964. I think one of the aims of the book is to present 64 as this very fertile uh, 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 moment in which both liberalism and conservatism change. And and, and, and the failure of Goldwater, you say, is, is not necessarily the, the end of conservatism. And in fact, you, you point to what will happen with Reagan and et cetera going forward. But before we get to that, what from from LBJ's side, what did the democratic politics look like, especially in the context you've already mentioned of civil rights as an increasing concern within the Democratic Party, both as something that people are trying to push forward and others are very much uh, vehemently opposing? Sure. So the Democratic story is a very, very different one, and it is one that really begins in tragedy. And the tragedy is the murder of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas on November 22, 1963. John F. Kennedy was in Texas in part for political fundraising in advance of his reelection campaign in 1964. So Kennedy was supposed to lead the ticket for his party in 1964. That didn't happen. Lyndon Johnson entered the White House under the most tragic of circumstances. Johnson, for all of the power, for all of his accomplishments, had one of the most fragile egos of anyone I know in modern American politics. So throughout 1964, he's on again, off again as to whether he should run, whether the party wants him, whether the country wants him. And he'll have these melancholy moments where he considers dropping out. And it drove his wife, Lady Bird Johnson, nuts. It drove his closest advisors nuts. And at times they were patient with him. And at other times, they had very frank, uh, profanity-laden conversations 
with Lyndon telling him to get over himself, grow up, and deal with it, and run for the presidency. And it's it's fascinating just how often he talked about getting out. I don't know how serious he was about getting out, but his insecurities do do come through in uh, in that in the correspondence and the conversation transcripts that reveal that side of of Johnson. He was insecure about filling the Kennedy legacy. And that's ironic because Kennedy at the time of his death, prior to his death, had not necessarily been tremendously successful in getting programs passed. More of his agenda was stalled in Congress than not. And Kennedy's popularity, well, not today, his popularity ratings uh, before his death would be considered outstanding. Uh, uh, and even, even before the Trump presidency would be considered outstanding. But then his, then his numbers seemed low compared to, uh, compared to Eisenhower in the fifties or, or, or earlier. So, uh, Johnson was, Johnson was concerned, uh, that he didn't measure up to Kennedy, but he also helped create the myth of Kennedy. And he does that for, I would argue, noble purposes. Johnson wanted more than anything else when he became president following the Kennedy assassination to heal the nation's wounds. And he realized that the biggest part of healing the nation's wounds was resolving the biggest racial conflicts in the country at that point in time. He realized that to be president of all of the American people he had to sign the 1964 Civil Rights uh, Bill into law. It had to happen. And it had to happen before the presidential election. So Johnson throws his all as a new president in office under the most tragic of circumstances into passing the most controversial piece of legislation anyone could imagine at that point in history, which is another marker of just how different our politics today are from our politics then. Politicians then had had the belief in the importance of legislating that we just don't seem to share across the board now. And the party out of power did not view it as appropriate to halt the legislative process just because it was out of power, uh, which is another major difference with our politics today, if that makes sense. No, it does. Yeah, sure. And and and, I, and of course, there's examples that run counter, right? They were able to defeat anti-lynching legislation and they felt comfortable doing that. So it's not I think what you're talking about is more of a of a general trend, not necessarily, you know, a uniform approach. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Johnson throws his all into getting the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed. And there's a wonderful conversation. And I 
have snippets of it in in the book uh, from the near end of the battle for the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act. It has passed the House. It has passed in the Senate. Uh, the filibuster has been defeated yet again. And they're at the point of reconciling the House version with the Senate version. And Johnson has a conversation on the phone with Charlie Halleck, who is an Indiana Republican, and he's the House Minority Leader. And this is in late June of 1964. And Johnson is pressuring Halleck to get a rule, which means get the House, uh, approve the process in the House Rules Committee, make sure that the Republicans don't obstruct to move the, uh, move the reconciliation process between the House bill and the Senate bill forward. And Johnson wants to get it done so that he can sign the bill on or about July 4th, 1964. And they go back and forth and Halleck's saying, well, I don't know what all the Senate's put in that bill. We need to read it again. And you know, they're, they're just, they're, they're going back and forth like that. And Johnson's, well, you can give me that little rule. Just give me that little rule. And anybody who wants to can Google the conversation and listen to it. It is, it is a brilliant moment from the Johnson phone tapes and they go back and forth. And then Johnson, when he wears Halleck down a bit, he starts mentioning other pieces from his program. I need my war on poverty legislation. I need this legislation. I need my tax cut. I need this other thing. I need this other thing. And uh, you can see the Johnson who could never be sated with one political reform measure. He had a laundry list of reforms he wished to enact. And Halleck is getting more and more frustrated. And it's, it's a fascinating moment. But Johnson gets his way. The House does act. The Republicans do not obstruct. And Johnson signs the 1964 Civil Rights Act into law on July 2nd, 1964. Major, major White House ceremony. And so that becomes the backdrop for Johnson's convention. And I think what I need to set the stage here, because why does any of this matter? Johnson doesn't have a primary challenger. Why does this matter? What's important about Johnson's convention? It's that laundry list of legislation that he wanted. Johnson viewed himself not as a partisan Democratic president, but as president for the whole of the American people. And Johnson had an agenda for the whole of the American people. He wanted to enact a reform program that surpassed that of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Johnson wanted to best his most senior political mentor. Johnson had a really uh, skilled ability when he was a young man in Congress of searching out those with power and turning them into political mentors. And Franklin Roosevelt was one of those, uh, one of those individuals for Johnson. And when Johnson finds himself in the White House three decades later, he wants to best his deceased mentor and put into 
put into place a reform program surpassing the New Deal. And so that makes his political convention very important and his campaign that fall very important. To do so, he realizes that his program cannot fall victim to the same obstructionism that the Kennedy program fell victim to in 61, 62, and 63, where conservative Southern Democrats allied with conservative Republicans to block block forward movement on legislation. Johnson needs a big victory. And so that is what he's going for in 1964, a landslide victory that will give him the credibility in Congress and hopefully down ballot wins for members of the House and members of the Senate. So he will have veto proof, uh, filibuster proof. He will have the large majorities in the two houses of Congress willing to work with him on uh, medical reform and education reform and housing reform and environmental reform and on an urban reform and on and on we go, what does in fact become the great society. And so he, to do that, wants to make sure he wins an overwhelming victory. And his two big challenges in doing that both relate to the issue of civil rights. So before, oh, so I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to uh, allude briefly to the battle at the Democratic Convention in 1964 against the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and then uh, the concern about losing the South to the Republican Party in the fall election. Let me just ask you one question, sorry, about um, the tapes, which uh, is that everyone is familiar with the Nixon tapes and the importance that the Nixon tapes played in um, Nixon leaving office. LBJ has put these tapes in place himself. Was he continuing something that had begun earlier or was this something new to his administration? Okay, so the White House tapes are not new to the Johnson administration. Anyone who's interested in presidential recordings, I would encourage to go to the Miller Center's website. The Miller Center is part of the University of Virginia, and they have done a tremendous public service in making uh, the telephone recordings of presidents available. So the earliest recorded telephone conversation of a president was from the very end of the Roosevelt administration, and there's just one or two. Not much with Truman, not much with Eisenhower. Kennedy recorded much more liberally, meaning frequently, not liberal in the political sense, but liberal in the uh, frequency uh, sense. And so the recording system existed in the White House when Johnson came in. And in the early days, Johnson thought it important to record his conversations to have a record. He wasn't entirely sure under what circumstances Kennedy had been killed, and this was a perilous moment in the nation's history. And so he thought it important to have the recordings available for any who might wish to listen or for his own, really for his own uh, own usage, because 
the recordings weren't the recording system was not well known. Um, he used it less as the presidency went on, but Nixon recorded everything. And to our knowledge, there's been no recording since Nixon because the recordings proved detrimental to the uh, continuation of the Nixon presidency, as did other things. But that's another subject and other people have written widely on that. But a great tool for historians. Oh, marvelous. And I must say the Johnson tapes are easier to listen to than any of the others, just because Johnson usually spoke so clearly and uh, and Nixon often sounded like he had a mouthful of marbles and is much harder to hear on his tapes. So just from an audio quality, uh, uh, the Johnson tapes are easy to use. So the, the title of the book, and I probably should have said this at the start, is not Sons, S-O-N-S, it's S-U-N-S. And um, all of us are uh, familiar with the Southwest and the Sun Belt as a political term, but it's actually a relatively new political term uh, given the 1964 context. So I was wondering, and, and one of the arguments in the book is that both of the candidates, Goldwater and uh, Johnson, are are shaped by the politics of where they're from. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about these two very different versions of the Southwest and the a little bit about how this part of the country is now politically relevant in 1960 in a way that it was not for the FDR coalition in 1940. Right. So the Sun Belt becomes relevant politically by the 1960s because of the number of people who move to the southern tier of states from East Coast to West Coast in the years during and after the New Deal. Uh, First wave of migration perhaps uh, is the result of the Dust Bowl. A second wave of migration is during World War II because of the placement of defense plants in the South and the Southwest with a tremendous amount of defense plants placed in California on the West Coast. So that draws people. And the movement continues in the post-war years as Americans are following job opportunities in the in the Sunbelt region. So the Sunbelt becomes politically powerful because of a multi-decade migration process. As to Lyndon and Johnson, Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater both being reflective of different parts of the Sunbelt. Goldwater is reflective of that ironic part of the Sun Belt, ironic in this way. Goldwater is uh, someone who believed capitalism and uh, and social welfare programs such as those of the New Deal and the Great Society were antithetical. He believed capitalism would suffer because of government regulation and government reform. And so he wanted to scale all of that back. 
Yet, the Arizona in which his family became wealthy could not have existed without a federal government that helped make the state habitable for uh, for more and more people through the building of dams that provided water resources, just as one example. So it's ironic that so many of those Sunbelt voters who are primed to listen to a Goldwater message about the ill effects of an activist federal government are living in a place that would not have been habitable in the way that they wish to habitate without that same activist federal government. So there is a certain irony and contradiction that most assuredly does not get examined on the Goldwater side of this equation. Johnson's regional ties are something that he is constantly running from. He does not like it when folks point out his Texas accent. He does not like uh, being criticized as regional. But nevertheless, coming of age in a one-party state where there was no Republican Party rendered Johnson not terribly partisan, but much more pragmatic in his approach to governing. So in that way, he is also, in terms of how he functions politically, very much shaped by the place from which he came as well. And unlike Goldwater, who crusaded against the excesses of the New Deal and the excesses of the Great Society, Johnson throughout his political career had been a loud and strong champion of using the federal government to make the South and the Southwest more habitable and more modern for the people who lived there. I'd like readers to think about the poverty in the South and what we now call the Southwest in the 1930s. This is a part of the United States where uh, electricity was not necessarily uh, common, where running water was not necessarily widely available outside of large cities. Uh, This was a very different place uh, from what we think of today when we think of the South and the Southwest. And Johnson was a major figure in the remaking of of those regions. So very different ideas about the importance of federal power and what federal power can do to improve the lives of the American people. So in the book, um, chapters six and seven are both devoted to the campaign and um, the results. And you've already alluded to the importance of the down ballot elections that take place, especially for the Democrats in Congress. Obviously, this is a big question, but why is this election so important? And and how does what happens in this campaign help us understand the modern ideologies of liberalism and conservatism 
that emerge in the decades to follow? So I'll focus on liberalism first. Prior to 1964, if you asked most Americans about what the liberal agenda was in the country, you would get some sort of answer keyed to the New Deal that liberalism in the United States was focused on economic reform and economic regulation by the federal government, uh, looking to the various programs of the New Deal and successor programs from the Truman and Eisenhower years. In the Johnson years, liberalism and liberals begin in a much more serious way taking on identity issues. And by that, I mean civil rights. Civil rights in the 1960s becomes a centerpiece issue in the Democratic Party through Lyndon Johnson's signing of not one, not two, but ultimately three major pieces of civil rights reform, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which dealt with uh, public accommodations and access to public spaces, Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is, as the name implied, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968, also as the name implies. So civil rights becomes a major, major part of, uh, of liberalism as a result of this, which opens the door to so-called identity politics and demands uh, in subsequent decades for women's rights reform, uh, LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that helps change Democratic Party liberalism. At the same time, and scholars have argued a whole bunch about whether Republicans were simply engaged in backlash or not, but there is very much in Goldwater's movement a backlash component to both old-style liberalism and this newer-style civil rights liberalism. And at moments, Goldwater plays heavily into it. I'll just paint the scene from one Goldwater rally. It was not uncommon at Goldwater rallies in the South to see more Confederate flags than American flags. And at one particular Goldwater rally, uh, the football field in the local town was planted with white lilies and white girls from the town were dressed in white gowns and positioned on the football field. And the, the, the visual imagery here of what Goldwater was speaking to, who he was speaking to could not be, uh, could not be missed. Uh, so said the journalists who covered the, covered the campaign and saw that, that there was a tremendous conflict over the need for civil rights and Goldwater spoke more to those who were opposed to civil rights reform. That's interesting because Goldwater had long been a member of the NAACP and had been a proponent of equality among the races. He just said he didn't want the federal government involved in guaranteeing that equality. 
So all very complicated here, but in a very simple way, Goldwater in losing provides a methodology that smoother politicians, less prone to the sorts of gaffes that Goldwater made at one one point in time, he suggested sawing off the east coast of the United States. At another point in time, he suggested lobbing one, meaning a nuclear weapon, into the men's room of the Kremlin and other such statements as that. Uh, But the agenda he put forward becomes one much more exploitable by more deft candidates. And here I'm thinking of Ronald Reagan. So Goldwater lays the table. You don't get to Ronald Reagan without Barry Goldwater. So you started this book uh, before 2016, but you were were writing it during the 2016 election. Um, I was reading it in June of 2020. You do a really good job of trying in the book to say 64 is both similar and different to the politics that we see now. But the book came out in 2019, and you've now had more time to see what the presidency of Donald Trump looks like and also to know that we're going into an election in November 2020, it seems, between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So I'm wondering what you see as some of the lessons of 1964 uh, I, I think this is an important book for everyone to read right now because it it really helps you understand some of what's at play. But rather than hearing what I think, I want to hear what you think. Sure. So, yes, I think that everyone who believes they have a stake in the election of Joe Biden or, or a Democrat, well, Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. Uh, he's already secured the a required number of delegates. So he is the he is the presumptive party nominee until it is blessed by the convention in whatever form that takes. Uh, to read and understand this book, even uh, even and maybe especially those who would have preferred a more progressive a more progressive candidate. In in that ways, there's there's some rhyming between. A Joe Biden in 2020 and a Lyndon Johnson in 1964. Lyndon Johnson was never the first choice or even the 15th choice of self-professed liberals in the 1960s. He was not trusted, in part because he was from the South, Texas, in part because he had a wheeler dealer's approach to ethics, meaning sometimes he followed them and sometimes he didn't. Um, and so he was he was viewed with skepticism among the East Coast liberal elite in the party who preferred the Patrician Kennedy family to the to to Lyndon Johnson from Texas. That said, Lyndon Johnson, as a long creature of the Senate, appreciated how to get things done and how to compromise in ways that maybe uh, more pure liberal activists did not. 
And there's a there's a similarity with Biden. Biden is also a long creature of the Senate. He understands how the institution works. He understands, I hope, how still to get things done in the U.S. Senate. And so there is there's some rhyming or potential for rhyming there. Should Biden get elected, though, he'll be working with a very different Senate, I suspect, than Lyndon Johnson worked with for his presidency. Lyndon Johnson had astronomically large Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress. Uh, Scholars have called the 89th Congress, the Congress elected in 1964 alongside Lyndon Johnson as the great 89th for all of the measures that it passed into into law. So that uh, that is important. But what I, I would think would be of most use here is appreciating the manner in which a pragmatic liberal who is as much center left as far left can still be the person who pushes a, a liberal's agenda through Congress, um, if that if that makes any sense. Uh, Oh, I think it makes a great deal of sense. And I and I, I felt reading the book, and again, I'm reading it in 2020, and one can only read it through the eyes of your own moment. But I think that um, uh, when you were writing the book, I don't think you could imagine, as almost no one in the world could imagine, that we would be experiencing a global pandemic, a shared political experience across the globe, even though we're ex- experiencing it differently. It is it is it is a very very rare moment, um, and a few weeks ago it would have been unimaginable to to think that we would have a national protest movement in the midst of a pandemic, and 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 so as I hear you talking about Joe Biden and the key uh, civil rights bills that were passed by LBJ, it seems to me more and more plausible that Biden would be in a position that he would not have been in and under pressure that he never would have been under to, if he were to win, to do some sort of substantial reform. But as you say, that would be quite difficult in the context of not having a, a great 89th Congress that is um, you know, ready to pass the legislation. Although, as you point out in the book, it wasn't it wasn't a cakewalk for LBJ because he did not have the support of his party uh, in the um, the five states in the South, the Democrats right. plus Georgia. Right, 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 right. No, uh, and uh, yeah, no, that's exactly exactly right. Um, but and and Biden will not have if he is elected in the fall. He will not have. He will not have the margins, um, even even accounting for even accounting for the uh, uh, Southern Democrats. Nor will Biden have something else that Johnson had. Biden won't have a I don't think a Republican leader in the Senate. Uh, Johnson and Everett McKinley Dirksen, the Republican minority leader in the Senate, were 
old Senate hands together. And Johnson and Dirksen horse traded on many an issue to get things done, assuming Mitch McConnell wins his re-election campaign in Kentucky. And certainly a strenuous fight is being put up against him as we speak, but I'm not going to count Mitch McConnell out at this point either. I have trouble envisioning a President Biden and a leader McConnell, even if he is only the minority leader, working together to bring the necessary Republican votes to pass a policing reform bill or any other sort of reform that would speak to speak to our moment of racial racial crisis. Uh, Nancy, I'm sorry to have to leave it there. It is such a terrific book, and um, I'm very pleased to have found it now because I think it is a, a, a great a great book to read going into the presidential presidential election of 2020. And I think it also offers readers. Uh, both a complex and accessible way of understanding how our primaries and elections have changed, what is similar. It it provides a lot of the needed background for understanding why there are protest movements right now throughout the United States. So thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Uh, And for listeners, the book is Nancy Beck Young's Two Sons of the Southwest, Lyndon Johnson, Barry Goldwater, and the 1964 battle between liberalism and conservative from the University of Kansas Press 2019. It's available on the University of Kansas Press website. It's also available in the usual ways. And if you want to support your brick and mortar bookstores, you might uh, order it directly from them or look up bookshop.org, which will ship you a book from the uh, uh, from the bookstore to your door. Uh, Nancy, what's your next project? What are you working on right now? So I'm uh, working on a couple of projects right now. I'm finishing uh, revisions to a manuscript on the Early New Deal, and I am engaged in what will be the most extensive archival journey I've ever been on. I'm writing a biography of John Nance Garner, who was FDR's first vice president, and before that, Speaker of the House, and before that, a long-serving member of Congress. The thing that makes Garner difficult is he burned all of his papers. Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, that makes me nervous as a scholar. Well, when you're done, you'll have to come back and talk to us again at New Books. So thank you so much uh, for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for having me.